a walk through the history and horticulture of the Regent's Park. Hello, my name is Anna Sullivan and I will be your guide today. This walk explores the history, ornamental features and gardens of the Regent's Park. Find out about the origins of the park, the people and royal personages who shape the landscape and the design ideas that influence centuries of future town planning. Discover the places where a giant conservatory once stood, a gallery holding priceless works of art, and a wartime post office that sent millions of letters to soldiers on the front line. The walk begins outside the gates of Regent's University London on the inner circle, NW14NS. Baker Street is the closest tube line. It ends at Regent's Park tube station, There is level access along the route, except for one point where noted at the beginning of the walk. When you hear this sound, the instructions for the next section of the walk will follow. Standing with your back to the gates of Regent's University London, go across the road and enter Queen Mary's Gardens through the black and gold wrought iron gates ahead of you. Walk along the wide avenue straight ahead of you towards the fountain at the end. There are two steps up, halfway along the avenue. So, for a level route, take the first path to the left and follow it round, past the park cafe and the open-air theatre, to the fountain. Listen to the next section as you walk and stop when you reach the fountain. Regent's Park, which covers almost 400 acres, was one of the earliest public parks in the UK. It is named after the Prince Regent, a flamboyant playboy character who later became King George IV. The park was not originally intended to be public, having been conceived in the early 19th century as a fashionable private estate to house the upper classes. The land here was originally part of the Middlesex Forest, a vast tract of woodland full of wild deer, bulls and boars. In 1538, Henry VIII enclosed the area for his exclusive use as a royal hunting ground. He already had a hunting ground at Hyde Park, close to his palace at Whitehall, but also fancied this convenient spot to the north for further recreation. The new royal hunting ground, which Henry had closed off to the public with a ring mound and wooden fence, was called Marlebone Park. As well as hunting... The park was used for royal revels. Henry and Elizabeth I both used it for entertaining visiting foreign aristocrats and ambassadors from Russia, France and Spain. The area around the park was a lonely, dangerous place where dead bodies were found and robberies were common. During the English Civil War, the park was mortgaged by Charles I to pay for the royalist cause. He lost the war and his head, being executed in 1649. The park, along with the rest of the Crown lands, passed into Oliver Cromwell's hands. Over the next ten years, more than 16,000 of the park's trees were cut down, 3,000 to build ships for the navy. As the land was cleared, it turned into farmland, eventually becoming an important source of hay and dairy produce for the capital, three miles away. Following the restoration of Charles II to the throne in 1660, the land returned to the crown. During the 18th century, the village of Marlebone developed as a fashionable residential area, so that London grew out gradually towards the park.
In the early 19th century, the Prince Regent, who loved new building projects and also needed to fund his war with France's Emperor Napoleon, realised that there was money to be made from turning Marlebon Park into an exclusive residential estate. Plans were drawn up by the Prince's architect, John Nash, in 1811, and work began on laying down the new development in 1812. The 18-acre garden that you're walking through now was originally home to the Royal Botanic Society, which took the lease in 1838. The gardens were designed to display plants for medical, agricultural and manufacturing uses. There was an experimental garden, an American garden, a rose garden and a geographical garden. Huge tents were erected each year for flower shows in May, June and July. Queen Victoria loved the gardens and was a regular visitor with her children. The Royal Botanic Society disbanded in 1932 and the gardens reopened as Queen Mary's Gardens in 1935. To the left is the open-air theatre, which opened in 1933 and replaced the Society's museum and secretary's house. If you have by now reached the fountain, you are standing on the spot where a huge conservatory of iron and glass once stood. It was the first building of its kind, designed by Nash's protégé Decimus Burton, who later went on to design the Palm House at Kew. The conservatory, which opened in 1846, was 175 feet long and 75 feet wide, with a 40-foot high roof. It housed many plants that were unusual at the time, including a banana plant, from which Queen Victoria had her first taste of the fruit. There was also a water lily house, home to a giant Amazonian water lily. Its leaves were so large that a man could sit on a chair upon them. The Triton Fountain, by William Macmillan, commemorates wealthy local artist and resident Sigismund Goetzer, who paid for the ornate gilded gates of Queen Mary's Gardens, and much of the garden's planting and statuary in the 1930s. As you stand facing the fountain, walk anti-clockwise to the right and take the path to the right, leading to another part of the garden. You will see flower borders ahead and an avenue of small cherry trees on the right. Continue walking along this path between the flower borders, past a small pond with a waterfall on the left, Take the first path on your left, after the pond, and walk up a slight slope. This path takes you through the Mediterranean garden, which features semi-tender plants, including cypress, strawberry tree, olives and acacias. These plants do well here in the sheltered conditions of the park, but would be unlikely to survive in colder, wetter parts of the UK. Continue walking to the end of this path, then start listening again. At the end of the path, turn left and walk towards a second pair of black and gold wrought iron gates. Stop just before you reach the gates and listen to the next section. On your right is the Rose Garden, which features 12,000 roses and is a sight to behold and smell in May and June. The gardens were designed in 1932 by Duncan Campbell, the park's first superintendent. They included a miniature lake with island and bridge and a large circular rose garden. The mound at the centre of the garden, which forms the rockeries and waterfall, was created using the soil and stone excavated when John Nash created the larger lake that lies to the west of the park 
1812. If you wish to explore the Rose Garden and Lake, please do so and return to this place when you're ready to resume the walk. To continue the walk, go through the gates ahead of you, bare left, and cross the road towards the allotment garden on the corner of the Inner Circle and Chester Road. Stop there and listen to the next section. The Regent's Park allotment offers inspiration, advice and practical demonstrations on growing food organically. It was founded as part of Capital Growth, a project that aimed to set up 2012 food-growing spaces across London to mark the 2012 Olympics. If you wish to visit the allotment, you will find the gate a little further down on the left. Please return to this corner when you're ready to resume the walk. To continue the walk, carry on along Chester Road towards the Zebra Crossing. Listen as you go and stop when you reach the Zebra Crossing. The road is flanked by cherry trees, Prunus Sunset Boulevard. The trees here have been replanted, replacing the original avenue of cherries that was established in the 1930s, again paid for by the park's benefactor, Sigismund Goetze. Goetze and his wife Constance lived in Grove House on the western edge of the park. They made many donations to Regent's Park, and Goetze also set up the Constance Fund in his wife's name to provide statuary for other London parks. At the Zebra Crossing, turn left into the Broadwalk, a wide avenue with trees to either side. Walk towards the white monument that you can see in the distance, listening to the next section as you go. Stop when you reach the monument. Royal architect John Nash planned the new Regent's Park development as a complete small town with fine exclusive residences for the gentry, a church, three markets, service areas and housing for servants and tradesmen. He used the existing circular shape of Marlborough Park to create a design based on concentric circles and envisaged a parkland of water, sweeping grassland and carefully composed groups of trees. The layout of the park landscape which was a type of design known as picturesque, was much influenced by the ideas of landscape designer Humphrey Repton, with whom Nash had collaborated between 1795 and 1802. Enveloped within the landscape were to be 56 individually designed private villas, each set in their own grounds. Furthermore, the park was to be surrounded by four imposing terraces, each of which would look like a grand palace. Nash's design, which combined urban architecture with a countryside setting, was a pioneering version of the concept known as Rus in Urbe, or Countryside in the Town. His ideas were very influential, and the combination of buildings and a landscaped setting became an important feature of English town planning from the 19th century to the present day. Another building that Nash planned for the park was a summer palace for the Prince Regent. This was to be linked to the Prince's main residence at Carlton House near Westminster by a grand avenue. The aim was to rival the Rue de Rivoli in Paris, which had been built by the Prince Regent's enemy, Napoleon, Emperor of France, with whom the English were at war until 1815. The Broadwalk Café, which you will pass on your left as you walk up the avenue, roughly occupies the place where the Prince Regent's summer palace would have stood. 
Work on the park took longer than expected and the palace was never built. The Prince Regent, who had succeeded to the throne as George IV in 1820, lost interest and turned his attention to developing Buckingham Palace instead. The Broadwalk is what remains of Nash's related plan for a processional route through the park at the end of his Grand Thoroughfare from Westminster. The walk was the first part of the park to be open to the public on Sundays in 1836, although most of the rest of the park remained fenced off. Another 99 acres opened in 1841 and other areas followed, so that by the mid-20th century the public park as we know it today was established. The major tree in the original Nash plantings along Broadwalk was elm, but these were devastated by Dutch elm disease in the 1970s. Still more trees were uprooted in storms during the late 20th century. In just one night, 192 trees were blown down across the park during the Great Storm of October 1987. The avenue today is lined mainly by rows of oak, sycamore, lime and horse chestnut. You may by now have reached the White Monument, which is known as the Ready Money Drinking Fountain. This was given to the park by Indian potentate Sir Kawasji Jahangir in 1869. It is designed in Victorian Gothic style, made of Sicilian marble and granite. When you're ready to move on, turn your back to the fountain so that you are looking back down Broadwalk the way you've already come. From here, take the path on the left that leads towards the trees. The path forks almost immediately. Take the right-hand fork so that you're walking back parallel to the way you came, with the trees of the Broadwalk on your right. Ahead of you, on the horizon, you can see the BT Tower. Listen to the next section as you go. You are now walking across an area of the park known as Cumberland Green, John Nash had hoped that his planned new estate would bring the Crown an income of almost £60,000 per year for an outlay of just £12,000. Work began on construction in 1812, but the progress was slow and costs escalated. The landscape of lake, trees and grassland was completed within the first year, but the building work was not fully complete until 16 years later. Ultimately, just eight of Nash's proposed 56 private villas were realised. He had also planned four grand terraces to surround the park, but the one to the north was abandoned. If you look to your left through the far trees, you can see the blue and white top of Cumberland Terrace. This is considered to be the most magnificent of the three Nash terraces. Begun in 1826, the terrace is composed of three separate blocks linked by immense decorative arches. Like the other Nash terraces, the terrace has a palace front, which disguises the row of separate houses and apartments behind it, making it appear as a single great building. The grand blue pediment that tops the central block features statuary by George Bubb, representing the arts, sciences and trades of the British Empire. These days, houses in Cumberland Terrace change hands for upwards of £15 million, Famous residents, past and present, have included artist Damien Hirst, chef Jamie Oliver, designers Tom Ford and Stefano Gabbana, and actors Sasha Baron-Cohen, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman.
During both the First and Second World Wars, many parts of the park were requisitioned for military uses. On Cumberland Green, between 1914 and 1918, there stood a vast wooden post office, which delivered more than 2 billion letters and 140 million parcels to and from the front line in the First World War. Known as the Home Depot, the post office covered five acres and was the largest wooden building in the world. At the start of the war, the depot was handling five million letters a week. By the end, this had grown to a turnover of 12 million items each week. Most of the 2,500 workers involved in this colossal effort were women, replacing the men who had been called up to fight in the war. 19,000 bags of mail crossed the English Channel every day, bound for the trenches. Quite a few didn't make it. 134 mail ships were destroyed by the enemy in four years. Continue along to the end of the path and start listening again when you get there. At the end of the path, turn right and return to Broadwalk. Turn left when you reach Broadwalk and go back through the gates to Chester Road. Cross the road at the Zebra Crossing and enter the Avenue Gardens through the gates opposite. Once you are in the gardens, take the first path on the right, which leads towards a small ornamental shelter. Follow the path past the shelter as it curves to the left and walk between flower borders towards the three-tier fountain ahead of you. Stop when you reach the fountain and listen to the next section. The Avenue Gardens, which opened in 1864, were designed by William Andrews Nesfield, a well-known Victorian garden designer in formal Italian style. They replaced the southern end of the Broadwalk, which had been laid out by John Nash, and completed the park's transformation into a fashionable promenading ground. The new gardens featured ornamental stonework and bright bedding displays at the particular request of Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert. Start walking through the gardens, either to the left or the right of the fountain, and keep listening as you go. The formerly patterned layout of flower beds at the centre of the garden is known as a parterre. This type of decorative arrangement was popular in Victorian times for the dense display of annual flowers in blocks of colour known as carpet bedding. The giant circular bowl at the centre of the parterre, supported by four-winged lions, is known as the griffin or lion tatsa. It is made of artificial stone and was supplied by craftsmen Austin and Seeley in 1863. To either side of the parterre are relatively new lines of avenue trees, tulip trees on the right and lime trees on the left. There are very few old trees in the park due to poor soil conditions. Most of the park's 5,000 trees are less than 100 years old 
and none remain from Nash's time. The limes and tulip trees were planted in the 1990s, replacing the avenue of horse chestnuts that was here previously. The tulip tree, known in the USA as the yellow poplar, was introduced to Britain from Virginia in the 16th century by the Tradescants, a father and son team who were gardeners to Charles I. The tree has unusually shaped leaves and mature specimens bear large tulip-shaped flowers. However, this doesn't happen until the tree is about 25 years old, so these trees are only just beginning to flower. The gardens were a popular attraction in Victorian times, but became neglected during the 20th century and fell into disrepair. They were restored in the 1990s, with 24 ornaments and urns being recast from the original designs in reconstituted Portland stone. Continue walking to the end of the parterre, where you will reach another three-tiered fountain, beyond which is a path flanked by shrub and flower borders. Walk along this path towards the single fountain at the end. When you reach the fountain, turn left and walk along the path across the main avenue towards another single fountain. Just beyond this, you will reach a fork in the path marked by a small, gnarled hazel tree. Stop when you reach this point and listen to the next section. You are now in the English garden, which extends away to your left. The garden was designed by Markham Nesfield between 1865 and 1866, shortly after he had finished laying out the avenue gardens that had been designed by his uncle, William. The garden is designed in naturalistic style, with winding paths, gentle slopes and dense shrubberies and specimen trees, creating a deliberate contrast with the formality of the avenue gardens. From July to October each year, the English garden is home to Frieze Sculpture, London's largest free display of outdoor art. It is a precursor to Frieze London, a contemporary art dealer's fair which takes place on nearby Marlebone Green each October. If you wish to explore the English garden, please do so. When you are ready to resume the walk, return to this place. To continue the walk, take the path that forks to the right of the hazel tree and walk until you reach the gate. Stop here and listen to the next section. If you look across the road to the left, you will see the Royal College of Physicians, designed by Dennis Lasden in 1964. The area at the front of the building is laid out as a physic garden, displaying more than 1,000 plants with medicinal uses. There are many tall trees at this junction, known as the London Plain. The plain is the capital's most common tree, planted in many parts of the city. It can grow to 35 metres and live for hundreds of years, as it is particularly resistant to pollution, thanks to its ability to shed toxins along with its bark. From the park gate, cross the road using the traffic island ahead of you. Turn right and walk along the pavement with the railings of Park Square on your left. Listen to the next section as you walk and stop when you reach the corner of the square.
Park Square is one of the largest private garden squares in London. It was designed, together with the gardens of Park Crescent on the other side of Marlebone Road, by Nash around 1823 to replace the grand circular entrance that he had originally planned to link Portland Place with the route leading to the Prince Regent's Summer Palace. The area where Park Square now stands was previously the location of a temporary art gallery set up by Count Truxess, who brought his collection of European artworks to London from Vienna in 1803. The Count rented the land and built a temporary art gallery with eight large connected rooms lit from above to display his treasures. The price of entry was one shilling and refreshments were available, a refinement that we take for granted these days, but which was not to be found anywhere else at the time. The Truxessian Gallery, as it was known, featured works by Dürer, Rembrandt, Leonardo da Vinci, Holbein, Cranach, Murillo, Poussin and Watteau. The Count had hoped to sell his collection to the nation, but Britain sadly turned up its nose. A subscription, an early form of crowdfunding, to purchase the collection raised just £77.14. shillings. The gallery closed in 1806 and the contents were sold off at knockdown prices. A Rembrandt went for £126, while a crucifixion by Cranach fetched three guineas. At the corner of the square, turn left into Park Square West and walk towards the gates at the end of the road. If you are doing this walk in autumn, you may catch the aroma of candy floss. This comes from the two katsura trees, Circidifilum japonicum, that stand on either side of the small gate into Park Square. The leaves smell of burnt sugar as they break down before winter. Stop when you reach the gates at the end of the road and listen to the next section. From here, you can see across the Marlebon Road to Park Crescent. This busy highway, originally known as New Road, was laid out in 1757 to link what was then the countryside of Islington and Paddington. If you look across the road to the entrance to Regent's Park Station, just behind it in Park Crescent, you can see the tops of two ornate garden buildings. These were designed by Nash in Greek Doric style and mark the entrance to an underground passage that runs beneath the Marlebone Road to Park Square. Known as the Nursemaid's Tunnel, this underpass was a safety feature that in days gone by enabled children of families who lived in the area, together with the nannies who looked after them, to cross between the two gardens and avoid the dangerous traffic along the busy Marlebone Road. There is a corresponding pair of identical lodges at the other end of the tunnel in Park Square, which can be seen through the railings, if you walk about halfway along Park Square to your left. The walk has now ended. Cross Marlebone Road at the traffic lights to reach Regent's Park Tube Station. This walk was devised by staff at Regent's University London, 
It was written by Sarah Jackson, recorded by Mike Peel, and produced by Guy Jackson. Your guide today was Anna Sullivan. Sources of information include Regent's Park by Anne Saunders, the Royal Park's website, London Gardens Online, and the Parks and Gardens UK website. Thank you.